0: got a lot to say about the world i occupy every day but when i say what's on my mind i find i piss people off you're listening to what the folk real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times i'm joy damiani
1: i'm sarah Baranowskis. On this episode, we are joined by Nicole Forster, an advocate for psilocybin mushrooms as a treatment for cluster headaches, a mental health professional, and a proponent for the full decriminalization of entheogenic plants and fungi.
2: Where I was, you know, told I could, I had to take this pharmaceutical medicine every day to treat them, but it was only, you know, thirty percent effective and came with all these side effects. Whereas I could take, you know, a very tiny amount of a mushroom of something that grows, you know, from the ground. Um, and be free of symptoms for you know three years.
1: In this episode, we talk about their work on the campaign to decriminalize psilocybin in Denver in 2019, and their work as the director of Decriminalized Nature Colorado, which recently submitted a ballot proposal to decriminalize entheogens in the 2022 Colorado statewide election. We break down what led her to her work in this movement. What the terms decriminalized in nature really mean in the drug policy movement and the challenges associated with the rapidly emerging corporate, medical, and regulated interests at play within the psychedelic renaissance.
0: But first, if you've been into what we've been up to here on What the Folk, please take a tiny moment to give us a five-star rating or a review or both because that helps us a lot. And you can also follow us on your favorite platforms. You can even give us love in the form of money via the donate button on our website, whatthefolkpod.com. If you are one of our incredible What The Folk fam who's been sharing us with everyone you know, we appreciate the whole entire fuck out of you. We will uh, very soon, we swear, be putting up a Patreon with gifts and bonus content and such uh, the apocalypse keeps getting in the way, but we promise we are on it. Now, before we kick off our entirely practical conversation about drugs, here is a song by Face Kiss called All the Same.
1: How is your apocalypse going?
2: I love this question. It's um, it's kind of like inherently psychedelic. So I was stoked to answer this. Um, you were talking about apocalypse, meaning this uh, unveiling and uncovering and returning to the truth. So um, I have definitely been in that headspace. Um, I it's interesting that you know I was already kind of working remotely. Uh, back in early 2020, but even just the, the context of working remotely has, has shifted so much. So it's been interesting to reflect on. I've been, um, trying to prioritize my health. Um, I think it's kind of where we're all at, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's still going. It's, a uh, It's not a sudden thing. It's this slowly, uh, slowly evolving apocalypse for sure.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. (sighs)
0: Yeah. It's I'm glad to hear you talk about it like that, because I think a lot of people um, when they think or hear the word apocalypse, they think of it as like this sudden like thing where it's like, all of a sudden it's like, and it's like, we, yes, we are in that, but also, like, it's a series of events unfolding and a series of revealings, and, yeah, we're we're in the midst of, of all of it. So thanks for bringing that framework in.
2: I'm thinking of, like, um, just times that I've tripped on psychedelics that have felt like that, you know? It's like it, everything seemed... It seemed like it was bringing a lot of clarity, and then... Um, you know, after the fact, you keep, you keep realizing more things. And I think that's kind of like the same sense of apocalypse that I'm thinking of is like, we're just every day building on some new realization.
1: (laughs) Totally. Um, Some new perspective shift. Yeah. Speaking of perspective shifts and psychedelics. So what kind of um, drove you to be interested in you know decriminalizing ethnogenic plants and that and the kind of work you're doing right now
0: oh sorry and I also because you use the word ethnogenic, I just realized that's a big word for a lot of people oh yeah not want to look up if you could just kind of throw in a nutshell of that good point
2: (laughs) decriminalized nature is kind of tended towards using that word entheogen um it means kind of, you know, to inspire the divine within. Um, And that's a way of speaking to the medicines we're talking about, you know, psilocybin, psilocin, DMT, mescaline, um, ibogaine, are all kind of associated with that. And it kind of separates them from this, um, you know, stigma we have around drugs, or even this, you know, commercial medical model type language that Um, has emerged in this space and and it kind of like grounds us back into um, you know these medicines you know are sacred and and have that you know reverence throughout history with many cultures and so it's just to kind of uplift that perspective so that's why we use that term and it, it gives us the opportunity to educate on what it means too so.
0: Excellent thanks.
2: Yeah so I think a lot about how like I find myself in this space right as an activist and um just like how many questions it's brought up for me about how i orient myself and how i talk about things and i feel like i'm like this body and this person that's like here from so many different angles and i just wanted to like speak to those angles they kind of come about like um I learned about psychedelics first, because I have a neurological condition called cluster headaches that I was diagnosed with when I was 16. And um, they're essentially a like, pretty severe neurological thing that happens. They're more similar to seizures. It's really intense pain. It's, you know, been described as the worst pain known to man, I I think 20% of people diagnosed with the condition actually end up committing suicide because it's so severe. And I, um, so, you know, that brings up the question of like, you know, I learned that psychedelics were, you know, anecdotally a cure for this. And so, um, I started reading that online and I, you know, tried it myself. I tried psilocybin at age 18 and, um, it got rid of the headaches for three years. And then I, tried it again and kind of the same deal. Um, so it kind of took me from this, um, space where I was, you know, told I could, I had to take this pharmaceutical medicine every day to treat them, but it was only, you know, 30% effective and came with all these side effects. Whereas I could take, you know, a very tiny amount of a mushroom of something that grows, you know, from the ground, um, and be free of symptoms for, you know, three years. And so, you know, that brings up all of these questions of like, of course, I want to, you know, say, like, how can, you know, we get access to people um, that are suffering to, you know, treat what they're suffering with, but, you know, can that access really come from the healthcare system, you know, like when uh, I was diagnosed with a severe condition, you know, the best thing they could do for me was give me a medication that was 30% effective or get me addicted to opiates as a teenager and. Um, So there's like hesitancy to to believe that that's really the best model, you know, our healthcare system relies on profit. And so if, you know, there's a shift from that ineffective medicine that I have to take frequently to a really effective, you know, natural medicine that I take once every three years, you know, there's a lot, a lot there. Um, I'm also a medical professional in the mental health space, I have a degree in speech language sciences and psychology. And I've worked in behavioral health since I graduated college um, a few years ago. And I currently manage a psychotherapy practice in Boulder. Um, So it's interesting, you know, to have that perspective as it ties into the ways the psychedelic space has moved into this kind of mass mental health approach. Um, You know, it's brought up a lot of questions for me, like... um, you know how do we deal with the mental cr- health crisis and like what causes it? You know, is it because people are depressed or is it because, you know, we live in a world that is very depressing and and continues to you know get arguably worse? You know, given the kind of conditions we're living in today. And um, so you know, like, are psychedelics really the answer to that? I, I think they have a lot of potential, but not if we're you know funneling through funneling them through this same system that's, you know, caused so many problems, you know, the mental health system has a horrible kind of record of mistreating people, um, people with marginalized identities, people with, you know, diagnoses that then have made it difficult for them to have equal rights with people. And so that, that system itself has a lot to answer to. Um, And I have a lot of hesitancy about it, you know, if it's ready to kind of uh, be the one pushing psychedelics. So you know, there's that angle. And then I also come into this space as, you know, a marginalized identity, being a queer person, you know, I'm facing a lot of rights issues, you know, within the healthcare system, within all other systems. And so, um, you know, even though I'm like working in this space, I'm, I'm facing, you know, all these questions around equity and access and, you know, this system, the healthcare system, you know, gatekeeping what I can and cannot do with my body, but also how I can and cannot speak about my body. And so um, I, uh, yeah, like I just, that's a really long answer, but like, that's kind of the, all these tension points that are constantly like intersecting through me as I'm trying to show up here and advocate for these medicines. So
0: that was a wonderful long answer, um, and I appreciate all the points you touched on, especially, well, especially all of them. But the, <laughs> the 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 really overarching point, though, that always resonates with me when I have these conversations with people is I want to find out if and how how they view psychedelics in through the filter of we live in a capitalistic patriarchal profit-oriented system and that in and of itself you know if 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 we like you're saying if we're funneling our use of these medicines through a system that is actively harming us and is using those syst- those those substances to treat the symptoms of a disease that it's continuing to cause then um yeah it's just like an extremely pl- problematic way to approach you know the use and understanding of these substances so thank you for <laughs> for coming at it from that place and also i guess my question in response to that is you know as you are Navigating these conversations, what are some of the ways that you approach them that like de- st- like takes away some of the stigma and refocuses the conversation on the fact that these substances are are not radical. We actually live in a very unnatural system that is um, exploiting and um, you know harvesting us essentially, and the more we get into I'm I'm, my personal theories and my experience is the more psychedelics we use, the more we understand that this system that we are living under and in is hurting us. Um, so how do you frame that conversation, um, to people who firstly aren't either, either aren't at all accustomed to talking about, um, any of these substances in a mainstream or destigmatized way and then also how do you talk talk about it in the sense of what regulation means
2: for sure yeah there's so much there um, talking yeah, about that was p- two big
0: questions sorry how uh, <laughs> no, no it's
2: it's perfect we're we're definitely yeah. on the same uh, wavelength there but the you know thinking about how venture capital shows up in this space and um, just even the, you know, the trauma that's being caused there, I think is super important to hit on. I did actually talk about that at a town hall recently, uh, um, that was put on by the proponents of the natural medicine health act, which is the potential, um, legalization framework for Colorado in 2022, um, of, you know, saying kind of, it, it starts out talking about healing trauma, but, this has to be funded by, you know, or it is being funded by, you know, huge venture capital in this space. And are they addressing the trauma that's going to be caused essentially by, you know, forcing these communities that have been the stewards of this medicine to, you know, either above ground themselves quickly in a model that they didn't create or, you know, be at risk for criminal penalties um, that are going to, you know, the arrest rates now are are sort of low there, you know, it doesn't mean it's not happening, but the, um, you know, prioritization of legalization is only going to incentivize that uh, to happen more frequently, because now there's, you know, taxation and, uh, you know, even more money being exchanged over these medicines that have been, you know, traditionally used and even used, you know, outside of regulation, but even outside of, you know, the exchange of money. And so, um, there's a big, you know, shift happening here. And, um, I, I think for myself personally, I mean, nobody can argue with my story. I have a very severe neurological condition. It's treated by a small dose of psychedelics. Like I, I feel like that speaks to anyone. I I've never met anyone who, um, wanted to challenge that or who didn't believe me or who, you know, whatever. So I have an an interesting kind of ability to just tell my story very quickly and it speaks to people. And it's also kind of different than the, you know, rhetoric that um, other people are using in this space about mass mental health or about, you know, whatever. But um, I think it's important to address that, um, you know, I'm advocating here for, full decriminalization first and foremost. So we, we have to get people away from the risk of criminal penalties um, so that they feel safe to come above ground and organize even more so that we can have a really community-led process to determining what a regulatory framework will look like so that it is coming from the bottom up and not the top down. You know, decriminalization focuses on protecting historically occurring access. So people have been accessing these medicines for centuries. We we have data that, you know, it's happened safely, that there isn't a risk to public health and safety in the, you know, 13 or 14 places that have decriminalized already. And so, you know, we know it is safe. We know it's happening. You know, I really, I, you know, I keep saying the only risk right now, is that nobody's profiting, nobody's being taxed. And so, you know, that's where this legalization, venture capital backed piece comes into the conversation. And what they have to do, or what they are doing is that they focus all of their conversation on expanding access. Whereas we're focusing all of our kind of conversation on how do we protect the access that has always occurred. So I think that's a really important distinction to make, when you start shifting to this, you know, how are we going to expand access? You know, one, it creates all these issues of like, is it going to be sustainable and is it going to be um, intentional and and all of that? But there's also this, um, I'm noticing, you know, we we're actually proposing a um, ballot initiative in the state of Colorado. That's only going to be decrim. Um, And then I've also worked some on, the conversations that have occurred around the natural medicine health act and you know the the lobbyists or the you know organizations that are pushing the big packs that are pushing those regulatory frameworks are really dependent on data that they have taken from the general public and and so um you kind of lose the intention and the values when you do that, because you're shifting from focusing on like, um, you know, what are the legacy uh, facilitators and the legacy growers and the people that have been doing this for centuries, you know, what did they want to see reflected in policy? What are they doing? How do we protect them? You're kind of shifting to like, how do we get votes from the psychedelic naive general public and so much Intention gets lost there, and it's you know something I'm grappling with all the time and yeah,
1: yeah, I mean we've certainly seen with cannabis in Colorado what just like a market based approach to legalization can do even if it's under the guise of you know helping people with their health, just to kind of unpack and clarify a little bit for especially for folks outside of the state. Um, about the two ballot initiatives and the one that you're working on versus the um, new approach pack led initiative,
2: yeah, so there's currently I guess five uh initiative drafts going through the state right now, and oh, then there's wow, also five. a bill there's also a bill um being proposed by a state rep um, that's going through the legislative system in Colorado um. I say five, meaning there's five drafts that have been submitted. And then what ends up happening is those drafts get edited down to one title that gets set. Um, In this case, two, there's four drafts from new approach one draft from us. Um, I am on a council that was organized by SPOR, the society for psychedelic outreach reform and education uh, called the responsible reform council, where we've been meeting to, create you know community-backed policy guidelines um to kind of advocate for community in any of these conversations that we have with you know uh politicians or uh packs or groups that might be lobbying in the state so there's um that work you know was kind of you know based on informing new approach and, and how they uh ended up submitting language. So they've they've submitted four drafts to the state and their title could be set, I think, on the 16th. Um, And in that process, you know, we became really concerned that we, meaning myself and people that were, you know, advocating for full decrim, people that have been involved in the decrim nature side of things or just even the broad decrim side of things, became really concerned that that wasn't going to be included in the new approach language um, and that even rushing into regulation at all without you know, real equity measures was really concerning. And so um, we submitted one that was only full decrim and then it also protects like facilitation and paraphernalia. So um, there's that one. And then there's, you know, the four drafts that new approach submitted will be kind of condensed into one. And because, you know, they've been sort of secretive and they like to do things behind closed doors, you know we don't know what language is going to be pulled from those four And it doesn't sound like they're going to tell us until after the title's been set. So um, that's the difference so far.
0: You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for Revelationary Times. Your hosts are Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Our guest on this episode is Nicole Forster. You can find out more information about the show and stream every episode at whatthefolkpod.com. And more about Nicole's work at facebook.com/decrimnaturecolorado or decriminalizenature.org. And now the next half of what the folk. Wow, it's such interesting stuff when you when it gets to those levels. Um, I'm interested in something else that you touched on earlier, which is how marginalized uh, people are disproportionately affected. By all of this, and I was thinking specifically about um, indigenous communities who've been using these medicines and being um, heavily criminalized for using these medicines um, you know since since the beginning of of this nation, essentially. and um i I'm wondering what kind of work you've been doing with the indigenous communities um, in Colorado. And um, if you could just shuttle a, a little bit of light on the ways that you're addressing like cultural appropriation um, and the, like the the further marginalization of those people by the sort of white collar um, you know legalization uh, m- movement types.
2: For sure, um, decriminalize nature at the national level. Uh, their board includes you know sixty percent indigenous people. Um, I think that's three other five board members. Um, I'm not sure if those numbers are correct. I know the sixty percent is correct. Um, and so you know initially, I reached out to them because of that and, and because of you know how white this space was in Colorado and how I saw it starting to you know really dip into that you know venture capital led, type mindset about you know let's make big money off of psychedelics let's you know act like they're this new thing and instead of respecting the traditional use or even I hear the traditional indigenous use spoken about like it's history you know not that it's something that's presently occurring um and so you know starting there um starting to reach out to them and then in that um an indigenous person on our local boulder steering committee started a group um, of indigenous people in colorado to kind of weigh in on this stuff and and that happened super recently um we actually took a big kind of hiatus from organizing from like mid 2020 to mid 2021 so um we've been kind of getting back into things since last fall but um And and that group, I think, is probably, I've heard, the largest group of Indigenous people that have organized around this topic in the country. And so, you know, that's happening and that's great, but we have to, you know, respect and acknowledge that that's happening under this fear of the regulatory model happening. And so there's not been adequate time for really good you know, trust building and community building. It's its all how are we going to react to this Natural Medicine Health Act. And, um, you know, kind of the national precedent is to decriminalize so people aren't going to jail and then giving time to uh, figuring out what things look like from there. Um, another big point that's being brought up by those communities is, you know, reparations and land back. And those are really things that, you know, I believe should be housed under legalization efforts, you know, if, you know, the medical profession, if corporate interests and and all of that is going to be profiting off of this, you know, how is that money going to be reallocated to Indigenous communities? And how is that going to be reallocated to, um, you know, just any disproportionately impacted marginalized community is so important that we address that from the get go. And, um, you know, there's like kind of this tendency to just like use the word equity, but if you really read into it, it's like, I don't, I don't know if that's equitable. Like, is that really, you know, addressing it? And so, um, definitely like want to see legalization, you know, people who are advocating for that, like, you know, what are you doing for the land back movement? What are you doing for, reparations and um also just noting that you know those communities are very immersed in that work and so uh, it's been hard to do outreach sometimes because you know there's just so much other big pressing issues for those communities and the feedback we get is you know like people shouldn't be in jail but people shouldn't be profiting either and so kind of figuring out, you know, the best way to move forward and all that. Yeah, I really appreciate
1: that, um, you know, decriminalize Colorado and decriminalize nature being really intentional about that. And it seems like that's such a challenge to try to do things right. You can't, you know, there's some Ironically, I'm going to quote a project management aphorism here, but it's like you can do it quick, you can do it cheap, or you can do it right, but you can't do it all three ways. So, like trying to do something right and with intention, even if it's not the like sexiest way or like the the way that's going to make the most profit, that's you know that just seems like it's such a challenge to try to communicate why that's important to people. So, I'm kind of curious hear about some of your challenging. Uh, you know some of the challenges you've had with organizing around this issue maybe and also how you know this movement might relate to you know movement decrim movements across the nation that are happening
2: for sure yeah there's i'm thinking of like the Lao to quote that's you know nature does not hurry yet everything is accomplished and mm. that's beautiful and i agree but like politics doesn't work like that and yeah. so um we you know there's so much like fear mongering where, you know, it's like, oh, if we don't pass the citizen led legalization model, then the FDA is going to do this thing. And then, you know, well, if we don't pass decrim, then this is going to happen. And there's been so much of a rush to like get things accomplished that it, you know, it's it's been really challenging um, and you know, just to like reiterate that kind of like trauma that's caused by, you know, white supremacy and venture capital and, you know, all of, I think, um, like Sarah, you referred to it as like all of the isms that were under, uh, when we talked earlier. Yeah. Like, (laughs) um, you know, the, you know, there's a lot of trauma there and, um, how those systems operate. And then, to just compare that to like how are just you know the working class like grassroots level people like um, able to organize when we're going through a global crisis like that's you know so challenging to just move all of this stuff to zoom especially stuff that's like you know not even legal like you know we're now doing it all over the internet when we were used to meeting in person you know privately and and so it's it's been a really big challenge um but it's been a really big you know opportunity to bring people together and it's I'd say moving in a really great direction now over the past couple months than it, it was in the past so I'm hopeful uh even given all the like challenges that we've had
0: yeah it seems like um you know it's good that that you have your eye on the long game, but also, you know, your feet firmly grounded in our, our present reality, (laughs) Um, which is that, you know, we kind of don't have as much time as we would like to, um, to, to um, protect people who are already using these medicines and to, um, yeah, to kind of in doing that, take apart some of the systems that are that we're using psychedelics to find relief from or eth- ethno- is it ethnogens is that the correct entheogens entheogens thank you it's new to me like and i I tend to think of myself as like fairly aware of this kind of stuff so i'm I'm sure like for example like when I first started taking psychedelics regularly and ent- and ent- wait entheogens. Did I get it right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't (laughs) know if I got it right earlier. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started using them regularly because I had access regularly, um, I really normalized them in my life to the extent that I would like casually um, use them in situations that were not particularly thought of as like appropriate, <laughs> like a wedding and, um, where like nobody else was, it was just sort of, I didn't want to drink too much. So I was like, I'm going to take this instead. And, and it, it was, you know, it worked out really, really fun. Actually, it was a really lovely wedding reception. But <laughs> the the point being that like when we're having these conversations that are so multi-layered, and it seems like you're trying to address, like, all the layers. And um, at the same time, n- namely, like, the access issue, the um, the cultural impact issue, the we're living under capitalism and, like, a corporatocracy, the oligarchy, essentially, issue. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, like, maybe this is maybe a more meta question, (laughs) but have you found that, um, you've re have you found that your use of, um, all of these different substances has changed or shifted as you have worked with, with decriminalization and has your relationship to them shifted at all?
2: That's a really good question. And I, I actually don't know if anyone's ever asked me that before. So I'm really thinking on it. Um, I, I I think what's really shifted is how I've spoken about them. Um, I kind of tend to use them primarily for the treatment of cluster headaches um, and in microdosing. Um, I did do my first like large dose um, um, of psilocybin, you know, a few months ago, but I'm kind of at this like weird point right now where I, um, I'm actually, I've been taking some like pharmaceutical medicines for like some other neurological stuff that actually like kind of dull out the, my use of psychedelics. And it's like a temporary thing while I'm like, I've been doing some physical therapy and some stuff. So uh, it's kind of this strange point of where, like, you know, we really do have to hold all of these things that kind of seem oppositional where like, I am advocating for these natural medicines to be, you know, I'm not anti the medical model, but I'm, you know, anti the medical model being the only model and and being, you know, coming at the expense of uh, legacy holders and, and of, um, you know, communities that are most, most at risk of, of being arrested. And so, um, I've kind of been sitting with like that strange, you know, just conundrum of like, oh, I, you know, I do need to take this pharmaceutical medicine and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I I think the original point I was trying to make was that when I first got involved, um, in the policy piece of this, it was in 2018 and I had learned, um, I had started, I'd met some people involved with the NOAC society, which is a nonprofit, Uh, based out of Colorado, that kind of intentionally thinks about, you know, how we relate with substances, and um, they have done a lot of work to, like, organize the professional psychedelic community, and and they're really allies in this, you know, decrim first kind of messaging, but I had learned that they were working on this uh, right to try policy where you, you know, you can, if you're, like, have a terminal illness, you can you have the right to try a um, something like psilocybin, which hasn't been approved um, as a treatment yet, and so I kind of let the you know knowing that about where the policy was dictate how I thought about what the policy should be, so then I thought, you know, well, medical cannabis happened first, I have a medical reason of using, so like yeah, I should support you know legalization for you know, cluster headaches. Like that's all I'm going to focus on. That's all I know, whatever. And uh, then I heard about the campaign to decriminalize psilocybin in Denver um, around that same time, you know, the late summer, early fall of of 2018. And it was taking this decrim first approach. And I, that's where it all kind of shifted for me is, is where it was, you know, I I hadn't been too knowledgeable about the cannabis movement and there was all of these cannabis people coming and saying, you know, like, wait, like we have to do this differently. Cannabis is still having all of these equity things come up. Like we have to decrim first. We have to um, address the equity holes that came up in cannabis. And so, you know, I think what's really shifted has been how I have been encouraged by so many people that know this space so much better than me and have been incredible mentors to me like on just how do we really have a, a true social justice, you know, equitable approach to this policy.
1: Awesome. I, yeah, and hard relate to the um, sort of having to hold multiple truths and I guess I can self-disclose. I. I am on some more traditional Western medicine approaches to treat my own mental health issues, but I also microdose psilocybin to treat my obsessive compulsive disorder. So I understand the like combined approach and needing to sort of honor all the different potential paths, you know, for health and mental health. Um, but I remember one thing we talked about when we talked earlier this week was sort of the shifting paradigm in mental health and, um, how you kind of say like how the conversation about psychedelics could be more aligned with that. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. I've been reflecting a lot on like, you know, being told that if, Oh, you know, we want to win this legalization campaign, we have to say this. And, you know, if we don't say it that way, like we're going to lose votes or, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's all like, Oh, let's focus on this mass mental health approach. And, um, it's all about, you know, treating treatment resistant depression, treating PTSD. And like, while these are very like real things, you know, people are depressed. People do have PTSD, you know, like I've been diagnosed with like complex post-traumatic stress. And a lot of that comes from like ways I've been mistreated by the medical system. So it's like ironic that like, you know, now you've got a word for it. Like, um, (laughs) but I, I, um, you know, as I reflect on like real healing, you know, it's, it kind of transcends like these diagnostic labels and, you know, I think, you know, one, we have to kind of think about how these diagnostic labels have been historically used to, uh, you know, take away people's rights and um, how kind of the, you know, even in the history of, you know, psychiatry, um, there's been so many, you know, I mean, just look into like the anti-psychiatry movement and all of the people that are, you know, dealing with the way psychiatry has harmed them. And so um, I, I think if we're not, participating in the paradigm shift that the mental health field is responsible for within this movement. Like we're only doing more harm. Um, I, I've been talking about the, the cover in Newsweek that had all the mushrooms on it that said like something about psilocybin being the new Prozac. And I, I've heard people, you know, repeat that in like a positive way, like, Oh, like it's this new panacea treatment for um, depression. And, and like, I have, it just raises all these red flags for me because I'm thinking, you know, look at the data on Prozac, like it's not great. And so why are we comparing it to, you know, something that didn't work? And are we just going to prescribe it to people like we prescribed them antidepressants that, you know, have all this data coming out that they're really harmful in the long term and that like, you know, all of that, but then a lot of people have found, you know, that they work for them. And, and so it's, it's all at the end of the day about like, do you have the right to choose what you want to put into your own body? Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, we, we are responsible for a huge paradigm shift right here. And I hope that, you know, we are able to speak to that as we advocate for these things and to remember that over, you know, what could potentially be the thing that gets more votes or kind of those types of arguments. So.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's really good to hear you talk about that. And um, it brought to mind this book uh, by Virginia Grice called Your Healing is Killing Me, which I've probably brought up on this pod before. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but um, I read it Um, in a class with uh, Serena Chopra, who we did have on the pod, um, we talked about the sort of the self-care and the healing industry in this nation and how uh, white-centered it is and how profit it is and how individually-centered it is, rather than addressing the source of um, the the depression and the source of the distress and the anxiety and the source of, um, you know, the trauma that people are using substances to deal with. And, uh, you know, when you, when you say that the, you know, because yes, it it definitely like more proportionally impacts, um, marginalized communities, specifically, um, black indigenous people of color, uh, immigrants, uh, people who are disenfranchised and don't have access to anything. But um, what it really, I think, brings up for me is how those those communities have been trying to say, like, the disease is the, you know, the the for-profit system, um, the disease is the exploitive system, the white supremacist, capitalistic, patriarchal system, and um, you know, just like Prozac isn't going to work because you're not going to take away the societal structures that um, make make people depressed. Um, psilocybin can't be looked at as something that can that can be used to make people more compatible with capitalism and systems that oppress them. Um, so it's really refreshing to hear you talk about it like this. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could um, reference, because I know we don't have a ton of time, but like if there are any um, books or lectures that you can refer people to that you know maybe helped open your mind to these kind of things Tell maybe just tell me a little bit more about what opened your mind to these kinds of this kind of framework around this this conversation.
2: yeah, for sure. I'm thinking of like the quote, "The welfare of humanity will always be the alibi of tyrants," which is like a Camus quote. I can't remember what it's from, but I have thought about that over and over and over throughout this movement and the pandemic and just like where we're at right now is there's you know, we have the innate knowledge to heal ourselves. And and that doesn't mean that, you know, we have to go off by ourselves and heal ourselves. You know, we heal ourselves with community through community, but so much like people, I think get their ego inflated and think like, Oh, I am a healer. And, you know, that's where kind of this extractive capitalism and, uh, you know, kind of stuff shows up. This isn't answering your question, but that's just where my mind was going quickly. Um, I off the top of my head, I'm having a hard time thinking of like specific books and like that kind of stuff. But I, um, uh, the book, like our right to drugs by Thomas Zaz is, is really interesting. And I've talked about it before publicly, like he kind of just breaks down, you know, um, he, he's a psychiatrist that kind of went on to address some of the bigger equity issues in psychiatry and psychiatry and, and kind of Around that um time where deinstitutionalization was happening and there was a lot of fight for like psychiatric patients' rights. Um and I'm having a hard time like thinking of specific books and that kind of stuff, but I am kind of in this headspace of like people that are critical of psychiatry and the mental health movement. So I'm just gonna kind of go off of that. Like the blog Madden America has a lot of really interesting information. I actually kind of think it is a book too. I can't remember, but it it goes through kind of the history of how psychiatry traditionally used medicines in a different way than the rest of medicine did. You know, it was, you know, medicine knows the etiology and then, you know, treats it with a medicine. Whereas like psychiatry kind of went from this approach of like, we don't know what's wrong with these people. So we're going to experimentally give them, these medicines and in kind of just that history of like experience uh, experimenting on like the most ill disabled people it has all kinds, kinds of problems and so I've been really inspired by psychiatric survivors and you know as a queer person like even that about me is historically pathologized and like so I kind of identify it through that way and like I'm thinking of even like just telling my story to doctors and then getting diagnosed with like PTSD, like, because I'm crying while I'm explaining a trauma that happened within the medical system, like, that is so wild. Like, now I'm, it's all on me as the patient um, to, you know, be called sick when I'm responding appropriately to, like, something super traumatic that happened to me. Um, But, yeah, I was talking about that and and talking about the book, Our Right to Drugs, um, and talking about this book, The Book of Woe, um, W-O-E, that kind of talks about a lot of corrupt things that happened in the writing of the most recent DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness or Disorder. I can't remember. That's kind of like the book that um, mental health uses for diagnostic codes. And it's actually, you know, the U.S. is the only country that uses that book. The rest of the world is on like the ICD system. So it's, it's just interesting, the, you know, politics and, all of that of why we do things the way we do them in America. But, um, yeah, I I think it's important to definitely think about all that stuff.
1: We'll put links to all those books in the show notes and to that blog and everything. Um, so I definitely want to make sure before we wrap up that, um, we direct people and again, we'll put in the show notes to how they can follow the decriminalized Colorado Um, initiatives and how they can support them Um, but we also kind of always like wrapping up our interviews with just kind of hearing what's fueling your fire right now especially during times where it's really hard sometimes at least speaking for myself to feel any kind of fire at all Mm -hmm. Um, just what's keeping you going right now and inspiring you.
2: Um, Unfortunately it's like the time crunch that we're in to get this figured out you know it's like I don't want it to be that a lot of people shy away from stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes that's like what leadership is. It's just like being able to like endure that. And that's kind of unfortunately where I am right now. It's like, I just got to do it. Like, yeah, and uh, that's real. <laughs> um, yeah. Super yeah. For real. sure. Um, yeah. I can give you like uh, I referenced well decriminalized nature is the, you know, big national organization Uh, I should know their website. It's either .org. I'm pretty sure it's .org. Um, And then I think their handles are just all Decriminalized Nature. Uh, You can follow us on social media at Decrim Nature Colorado and Decrim Nature Boulder um, on Facebook and Instagram. We don't have a website up right now. Um, I referenced the NOAC Society, N-O-W-A-K. They're really great. 501c3. I referenced uh, the Society for Psychedelic Outreach Reform and Education. They're another Colorado Psychedelic 501c3. Um, talked about uh, Nature National and Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Just put out a a press release about ways that they've kind of created a national healing alliance. So really interesting to look into that. Um, I don't think I talked about unlimited sciences, but uh, one of their people involved in that is on our local steering committee. And they've done a lot of great research with Johns Hopkins, like on real world psilocybin use. Um, That's a really cool thing. that's come out of DCREM. Um, I always feel bad, like listing things off cause there's no way to do it without forgetting something, but <laughs> I think that's everybody I referenced and our own handles. So, yeah,
1: well, if you think of anyone in the next few days, we'll make sure to put them in the show notes. Cool. So, um, yeah, there
0: any- thank you so much. Oh yeah. I, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I, I was gonna just gonna to same thing. Go ahead. I think <laughs> we're going to ask you, is there anything else share you want to, yeah, we pretty much do share a brain. It's kind of scary. Um, <laughs> Is there anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure we mention before we sign off here because I know you have to get on to uh
2: more great work. Yeah. Um I, am, I I think we hit on all of it just to wrap it up, you know, decrim first, give people time to organize, get people out of prison. We didn't really talk about expungement and record sealing, but that's another super important one is like Yeah. Um you know, we need to make sure we're, you know, preventing people from going to prison, but also getting people out of prison that were affected by these laws. And so, um, yeah, I'll end on that.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nicole. I know you're in a time crunch with everything. So I really appreciate you making time for us. And
0: I know, thank you for bringing the, the, the framework to the conversation that you did.
2: For sure. I really appreciate you guys reaching out and this was awesome.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll have links to everything in the show notes and yeah, go decrim. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for all the great work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. So aggressive. They could make it nicer. They really could. When I was house sitting, my my friends have washing and washing and washing machine and a dryer that makes this like very pleasant, like musical noise and sound when the nice. clothes are done instead of just blaring at you. And I was like, whoever thought of that as a genius? Like, why have washing machines not done this the entire time? Oh my time? God, yeah. The
0: last place I lived, there was one of those. And also, when it started, it would. It would do this little, you know, musical tone, and it always reminded me of "Sweet Child of Mine." So, like, it would start up, doo doo uh-huh. doo doo, and I would always in my head complete the riff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're discussing the scary Zoom voice that tells us recording is in progress because it seems to always make us jump no matter how many times we record the Zoom <laughs> tracks for this podcast. Speaking of this podcast, sorry we haven't been around for the last few weeks. We had a couple guests that didn't work out. We figured it was the universe's way of telling us we both we both kind of needed to focus on some personal life yeah. shit around the same time. But Yeah, and I
0: had a music video to make. And, uh, and record and um, we've all been just been dealing with all kinds of fun life stuff so we let the universe tell us when to stop and when to start again
1: yeah we're on a um, apocalypse release schedule yeah. so we can't promise this won't happen periodically
0: but, <laughs> but we're getting back here we are again
1: yeah here we <laughs> are and we have you know other episodes you can go back and listen to if yeah. you missed us and uh, I'm
0: honestly I feel like we do better work when we uh, when we don't push ourselves too hard in general. So we could have come up with like some kind of like episodes that we pulled out of our ass and handed to y'all but like you're better than that.
1: Yeah. And like really everyone should work that yeah. way. And I feel like that's a good seg into talking about the work that Nicole's <laughs> doing and trying to advocate for You know, a smart and conscious and very intentional approach to maybe eventually legalizing psychedelics, but starting with decriminalization to make sure that we get it right. So we don't replicate the same issues we've seen with the legalization of marijuana, where it's become very much a corporate cash grab and left a lot of people out of the table and really hasn't provided the reparations it should to the communities most harmed by the drug war. Yeah, Yeah. And it hasn't resulted in like a whole lot of people being
0: let out of jail as it should be resulting in. So we don't want to see that same uh, cycle repeated. I think I think Nicole is a really um, she brought a really helpful perspective for me in that, you know, the way that the psychedelic community has to work with the sort of, quote unquote, straight community of capitalism to (laughs) and the way that those two mentalities just clash it's like (laughs) it's like a it's like throwing like a Bowl of soup at a wall and expecting them to like hang out together (laughs) intact. Soup wall. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where that (laughs) metaphor came from. I I had to soup for lunch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's, we have metaphorical and literal walls around us. Um, I don't think it's possibly the weirdest metaphor we've ever had in our post-conversations. So I'm sure not. I'm sure not. (laughs) Nor will it be the weirdest. But yeah, the whole the whole soup wall issue, because it is, I think we were talking before we hit record about, you know, a healthy kind of decriminalization model, like the one Nicole and decriminalized nature are advocating for really kind of looks like the microcosm of a healthy functioning society. And we do not have that yeah. right now. So,
0: Yeah, exactly. We have what we have right now is a. Um, we we have a you know the process that was of the, of the past in place that has led us to you know corporatize cannabis and turn that into like a white dominated you know heavily exploitive industry but we don't have like a sustainable model in this current like overarching capitalist culture that shows us what healthy decriminalization looks like I mean, we do when we look at, um, you know, indigenous communities who have, who recognize like these substances as being part of life and like their responsible use as being a, a normal part of life. But we don't have that in the for profit healthcare world we live in.
1: No, and even like pulling back on that lens and thinking about capitalism in general. Like, the model that Decrim is proposing is kind of essentially anti-capitalist in structure because it's looking at intentionality. It's trying to look at nuance. It's looking at multiple ways to use substances, not just a medical model. It's basically doesn't fit in the boxes that capitalism requires everything to fit in from our discourse to our health care. Right we don't need to get into the big discourse that's happening now, but it's the perfect example of how capitalism creates a thing, pushes people to make a decision about a thing and just be in boxes when they're arguing about a thing, because it's easier to pick small battles than deal with the, all of the everything happening right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that can be com- like applied to pretty much any conflict point, right? Like you could just like overlay that um, because really, you know, psychedelics and, um, yeah, substances that are used to um, either medicinally or recreationally, like, change, change your perspective, essentially, um, and change the way you view life, like, that doesn't fit in with capitalism's desire to yeah to create very strict cages around all of us and everything and to define everything to have like a set outcome for like the you know when you take one substance you should have the same reaction to that substance every time like this very controlling dominating approach to substances that actually take away your all your desire to dominate and control
1: right (laughs) yeah I mean the system wants us to be divided that's like the most obvious thing to point out but it's like we have to keep fucking pointing it out because clearly the system keeps dividing (laughs) so right right like it keeps and it
0: like thrives on division you know I don't know I made the I made possibly the slight misstep recently of engaging with someone who was, like, very, very minimally engaging with someone posting about, like, how um, scared she was for the poor children growing up faceless in this society because of the masks. And I'm like, you know, like, the masks aren't taking away your children's faces. Um, Right. (laughs) Like, and... And I like I engaged for a moment but then I was like, wow, like this is really like there's no winning or resolving this conversation. This conversation was manufactured to keep us in it.
1: Exactly. Um, <laughs> and if you could like just it was a thought experiment, like what would you have in common with this person? You're both concerned about children and how children are being raised. Like that's not a bad motivation to come in commonality with. So it's starting from that place or, you know, people are concerned about people making decisions based on the right information or they're concerned about freedom of speech. Like there are values we all share that we can come together on and work from those places, but it doesn't serve the capitalist oligarchic patriarchal white supremacist etc etc structure to actually have Mm -hmm. us working from a place of resonance and seeing ourselves in the other we have to pitch battles and we have to pick the side that we're on and we have to defend those little meaningless hills to the death while the big hills are being siphoned away by the powers that be yeah like
0: we are we're really um we're being given Um, essentially like a, like a a cave to play in. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I had a different train of thought that I kind of like branched off from before I started talking. So hence cave. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was just wandering around in one. Uh, No, but it really like... <laughs> <laughs> exactly i was in plato's cave for a minute allow me to emerge and remember that essentially like not only um does like capitalism not like nuance but it actually doesn't like values mm. um it talks about values and um you know like the Quote unquote conservatives who are really not that different from the quote unquote liberals Mm -hmm. like to talk about values and being values driven, but when it really comes down to it, it's the exact opposite. And um, when you're truly living by your values and connecting with people based on values, you're Recognizing each other's shared humanity. You're recognizing the fact that we all can't help but depend on each other. You're recognizing the fact that we are all, like, mortal and um, equally clueless for the most part, you know. And capitalism, like, absolutely hates that mindset because it's not domineering. It's not controlling. It's not, like, this um, hyper-aggressive, Approach, it's not like exciting.
1: Right. (laughs) It's not a blockbuster. So, I've been revisiting Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle lately, and I just, to me, it's still such a relevant work, and it's sad that it's so relevant, but um, I'll post a link to where you can read it for free online in the show notes. Um, If you really want to get on some heavy, you know, French situationist philosophy from the late 60s, but just the whole idea that, you know, like the reality we live in is so not connected to the actual conditions of our humanity and that capitalism has created this kind of false reality that we're living in where we think we're fighting battles about values, but we're not actually fighting battles about our values. Um, right. We're being told that we're fighting
0: values. Ba- Battles about our values, but we're actually just fighting. Exactly. It's so interesting, like to take step ba- steps back from it because it's easy to get, um, really bogged down in the fight and in the conflict. Like I speak from personal experience. Oh, me too. <laughs> it's very easy, you know, to get bogged down in in the conflict, um, and when you know, the more, the more we have access to other perspectives, um, I think the easier it is to kind of extract ourselves from constant conflict and like recognize everyone comes from their own perspective, honestly. And, um, you know, and to, to try to To try to get, like, why people are the way they are. It doesn't necessarily mean, like, that it's giving them permission to be the way they are. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, to remove all of these um, kind of, like, contrived categories that were put in of anti-this or pro-that. Like, the only thing that... The only reason I ever care about what someone's political opinions are is because it shows me what their thought process is usually. Um, like I don't necessarily care as much about like having a different opinion from somebody as I care about like whether they arrived at that opinion in a way that like makes absolutely no sense to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's important to sometimes appro- pro- to approach those that you see as the other with curiosity instead of conflict right up the gate and then right like we were talking
0: about with Corey,
1: yeah exactly and then you know from there you can see if there's some real anti-human values you need to you know address or at least try to pitch a stand for but like I don't know, I'd probably be surprised at how little situations are actually like that if we actually stopped all this bullshit and just sat down and talked to each other about what we all care about as a human, mm-hmm. human beings. Which psychedelics help us do in such
0: a big way, you know? like Yeah. It, it really, that those substances probably do more to um, help us take apart our our judgment um, triggers and our um, you know our our desire to to define and um, understand everything um, in like a very black and white way, and they you know it, they then you know any amount of Western I don't want to say Western, but any amount of, like, pharmaceutical substance can really, that I have been ever prescribed or have known other people to be prescribed can do, you know. I guess we could talk about, like, MDMA and LSD and those substances which are manufactured, but, like, the fact is that we have this these medicinal substances that are natural, that if we use them, they... If we use them, they kind of make us incompatible with capitalism, right. and that should hopefully show us why capitalism is trying so hard to keep them inaccessible to most of us. Um, at least that's what it makes sense to to me. So we have to. That's why we have to kind of work within these strange um, walls that we didn't build. To you know that we throw soup at. That we throw soup at. We, that we throw soup soup at and then like swim around in the puddles or something. I, know.
1: I love soup. Welcome well.
0: to our talk on psychedelics.
1: From two people that have clearly never done any drugs at all. Never ever. Never ever. Um like, Yeah. If Congress could all
0: just like have an afternoon where they have to communicate with each other under the influence of psilocybin, I feel like Not only Congress would never reconvene, um, but we we would be having a lot more constructive conversations in general.
1: Yeah, that would be the dream. I mean, I think it's also interesting to consider why there is this kind of acceptable path forward, quote unquote, acceptable for something like psychedelics, where it's like, it's got to be medical and it's got to be this. It's like, we shouldn't necessarily assume the substances can't be twisted to serve the system. Which is why it's really important that the decrim conversation gets airtime and that that is the path we take forward, because that holds space for all these different uses of substances. Um, I mean, like we were talking about before, you know, like self-disclosure, I am currently prescribed Prozac. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I don't know if it's a placebo effect. If it is, it's a pretty powerful placebo effect for me, which maybe is an argument in and of itself for me to stay on it. Um, but like, you know, I do think that you can even approach those substances intentionally when, you know, at least speaking for myself, if it's the thing, if it feels like it'll help you get out of bed in the morning and do those basic things like yoga and meditation and eating right, that will help you, you know, have a positive domino effect, then maybe it's not a bad thing. I don't want to get us on a whole rabbit hole of psychiatric drugs, but I just think it's, um, you know, there's nuance to be had there as well, but also, you know, the dangers of that model where it's like, we're just going to throw something at your brain and it's going to act the same way in every single person's brain. I think that I'm really glad to see people critiquing that because, you know, I'm saying this about Prozac now, but I mean, I could be totally different about my own feelings about how I've been medicated in the future, so don't hold, don't hold me to this. I'm not I'm not necessarily pro Prozac or anti Prozac. It's just it is part of my life currently. So, well, yeah, and all these conversations. There's
0: so much unpacking yet to be done. Still, um, I'm glad that we've had a chance to uh, kind of dip our toes into this one. I'm looking forward to um, seeing how how Nicole and Decrim Colorado and Decrim, uh, nationally are able to, to accomplish their goals.
1: Yeah. If nothing else, just getting the conversation out there is super important. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's keep talking, keep taking entheogenic substances and, um, and, you know, keep remembering that there are a lot more things we can be doing for each other than against each other.
1: Indeed. <laughs> All right. See
0: you soon with the Folk Fam. We promise it won't be another month. We're on, we're on top of our shit now, and uh, well, the universe is telling. The universe <laughs> gave us permission to start again. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> until the universe tells us to pause again. <laughs> but yeah, we'll see you soon. Bye. Love y'all. <laughs>
0: is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Sarah is based on the native lands of Arapaho, Cheyenne, Ute, and oceti tribes known as Denver, Colorado. Joy is based on the native lands of the Cowlitz, Clackamas, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, known as Portland, Oregon.
1: Our featured music this episode has been All the Same by Face Kiss and Haymoon Moon and Peter Pan by Ray Diaz. You can find all the links you need to follow them and listen to more of their fantastic music in the show notes.
0: Our website is whatthefolkpod.com. You can follow us on social media at whatthefolkpod and contact us at whatthefolkpod at gmail.com. Our theme music is from In a Major Key by Joy Damiani, whose music and writing you can find at joydamiani.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with you soon for more What the Fogery. And until then, don't let the apocalypse get you down.